We are live. This is Two Teachers on a Train. I'm Shira Lowenstein. And I'm Melanie Eisen. And we are back after a long hiatus. Melanie, it's been too long. I know. It's, that's not good. So now we're back. We're back with a bang. <laughs> we are indeed. So uh, we always start by talking about what we have read or have, are reading. So what are you reading? Okay, so I am reading a book called Why Fly That Way by Kathy Greeley, which I learned about because I am part of the Mandel Teacher Educators Institute, and one of the activities that we did, um, one of the leaders of the institute said she had gotten it from this book, and this book is about an, a middle school teacher who um, who has been teaching middle school for a long time in Northern California and she's, you know, like the master teacher and everybody loves her and all the kids can't wait to get into her class. And every year she does this play based on their social studies unit and she walks into class on the first day and the kids kind of file in and you know, when you look around and you're like, Oh boy, this is not going to be great. And the kids were nasty to each other and nasty to her middle school kids. And she honestly did not know what to do. And she asked the question in the book, basically she says, um, I had a choice. I could either, um, just give up and just you know, go through the motions of going to work every day and the kids might learn or they might not learn or I can really make an effort to try to connect with these kids. So everything that she does, every decision that she makes for this class is about um, how to get these kids in the right culture, in the right mindset, and all those words. And I cannot put it down. It's not a very long book, but every page you're like, oh my gosh, that is such a great idea. Or I love that she's asking those questions. That sounds awesome. I want to read it. Hey, thanks for the recommendation. No props. Um, so I I haven't read a lot of books since we last talked live <laughs> on this show. Um, but one of them that I'm I'm recently obsessed with is called The Culture Code, and its subtitle is The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups, and it's written by Daniel Coyle. And um, I, I love these kind of like leadership books. They're just you know it's it's a it's a genre that I'm I'm pretty into. Uh, but but this book is uh the premise of the book is like why are some teams really good and they produce better than the sum of their whole parts and why are some teams just not good um and so he breaks down he breaks it into three basic skills and I have to say he his writing is very engaging and um sorry Daniel Coyle if you're a fan of ours but his TED talk is not good so his book is so much better so don't watch his TED talk read his book um and so he breaks down it in down into three skills which are building safety, sharing vulnerability, and establishing purpose. And then he talks about, he just brings in great anecdotes and really good stories, um, really all over all over the map, summer, summer like, you know, corporate leadership things. He talks about like this, this uh, band of robbers that, that like highly organized themselves and they were, you know, um, they worked really well together and stole millions of dollars. But he talks about the organizational structure and why they worked really well as a group together. Um, Did so they get caught? Eventually, they got caught, but but they they were like trying to hunt for this mastermind. They like thought it was like run by a mastermind, and it actually was these very 
small self-organized groups that were working and and why they were so successful was because everybody was so invested in in stealing money stealing money um and they they came from whatever it's a whole long story they came from like (laughs) you have to read it his his i'm telling you his anecdotes are really exciting um and and really varied and i think you know these these three ideas of building safety sharing vulnerability and establishing purpose are are really anything you know they're very relatable and something that we can we can all take away from it so uh, i would highly recommend it um yeah awesome so our topic for today is empowerment and we have spoken about engagement and we've spoken about you know student centered student voice student choice and now we're like amping it up a bit by taking the conversation to a different level of when you look Um, around your classroom or around your workspace? How do you feel? How are you providing opportunities for your students to be empowered? And then how are you as an educator um, empowered in your work? Many of us as educators are handed stacks of books and curricula and all and et cetera. And both from the teaching perspective and from the learning perspective, it's kind of like, okay, so I guess we're just going to go through this page by page and the kids just have to receive it page by page without much thinking or thought around, well, how can the students really make it their own? And how can I, as the teacher, take the topic and really invest in it to make it my own so I feel the passion that I want my students to feel about the topic and not be sort of tied to a set curriculum and a set set of standards without any kind of wiggle room at all to really relate it to yourself as an educator and then to your students. Right. Um, Melanie, interestingly enough, in my research for this episode, Educational Leadership put out a, a whole volume of their magazine called Giving Students Ownership of Learning. And um, it was in November of 2008. So I, I actually, the, my, the first resource that I read from this was about a school that um, that really focused on having students do a lot of service learning. And they talked about, you know, like it's really hard because they were worried about test scores and they were worried about achievement. But but they found that like when kids care about what they're doing, when they're really impassioned, they do so much better all around. And and all it takes is to for, for these kids to feel empowered is to give them something that's meaningful. And so they, they talked about how they broke, they broke up groups of kids into areas of interest and they were multi-age and they let the kids, um, you know, it was sort of an elective, but they had these big long-term projects that they worked on all year. And the kids were really empowered to do whatever they felt necessary from their own research to improve something. So he talks about like, there was a a river in the town that that they had claimed that the the town had declared like a dead river, which I don't really know what it means, but I guess it it was it was so polluted and it wasn't flowing, and the kids restored it to you know its natural beauty. And the reason they were able to do that was because you know they did the research, they really cared, they got uh, people involved, um, and through service learning, he, he really empowered these students. And he he talked about bringing it from uh, into different school districts um, as a superintendent. That's cool. Yeah, it was really interesting. 
Yeah, we, you know, that you, you hear about those kinds of stories also when schools are investing in experiential learning or project-based learning or genius hour, any of those pieces in which, you know, you identify an issue, somehow probably tie it to the curriculum, but yet it's able to be expanded into the community and really see what a difference um, kids can make when given the opportunity to try things and being given the opportunity to fail, that not everything is tied to a test or a quiz, but actually living through the processes makes learning that much more, um, from the student's perspective, that much more exciting. And because they have a say that goes beyond, like, I'm going to choose this assignment over that assignment. Right. And oftentimes kids don't even think of it as learning, right? Like I I think that at the beginning when he said, you know, people were worried about our test scores, you know, every, no one's really thinking of this as learning. They're they're saying like, why, why should they be doing this in school? Let them do it on their Sundays. But, uh, but really as teachers, we know that that there's so much more that goes into learning than like sitting and doing a worksheet or learning skills. And, and they actually were learning a ton through these projects. Right. Even in the book um, that I was referring to, Kathy Greeley's book, she has them learn the process of presenting. I, I don't know if she uses PowerPoints or whatever, but the idea of presenting, teaching somebody a new skill and what that comes with. And they had to do the research and then, but it was It started as pick a topic that excites you, because if you're excited about the topic, then we'll be excited to learn it, too. So she was, you know, you're you're sort of hitting so many targets at once when you open something like that up. And I know teachers will come back at us and say, you know, two teachers, well, it's easy for you to say, but I have to cover this kind of curriculum and I have to make sure that I get through these books and these chapters of the math book. So what would you say to those loyal listeners? (laughs) Well, um, I, th- I think it goes back to, to really planning very well, right? So, so books and, you know, textbooks and curriculum are, are a guide for where, where you want your kids to go. But ultimately, you have to think about the goals. Why are you doing what you're doing? And can it be achieved through a different way? So can I teach this skill in, you know, a different, through a different approach, through something that my kids care about, rather than teaching it from page 52, Right. For sure. For sure. So of course, one of my favorite authors is AJ Giuliani. I I probably mention him every time. And he and his friend, John Spencer, another amazing educator, have a book called Empowerment. And it basically, you know, is a step-by-step guide onto how to bring empowerment into your classroom. So I would highly recommend it. I think it was one of my beach reads from last summer, um, which is why I can't, it's in a beach bag somewhere and I can't (laughs) seem to put my hands on it to really quote from it. But it's powerful and it's told through, it's told um, in a variety of ways, obviously in a book. So some of it is, um, you know, um, written descriptions and some of it is infographics and some of it is, you know, QR codes. And so they really modeled how we can come at learning from so many directions that will give that sense of empowerment to our students within this book. I like that. Mm. Um, the other, the other thing that, that I was thinking about is um, thinking of about this from like a leadership perspective, how to empower teachers. And um, it kind of reminded me what you just said, like, you know, I have to do X, Y, and Z. How can I, how can I do all of that? And, um, and also empower my students. But I think as leaders, we also have to think about like, how can you empower your teachers to, to do what they need to do, what they think is best, right? Like you, you hired them because you think that they're good at teaching. And so you have to give them some sort of 
autonomy and some sort of freedom. And and I was reading a, an article in Harvard Business Review. Um, it's called Beyond Empowerment, Building a Company of Citizens. Um, and he's not at all thinking about schools or teachers. And actually, the article is written about, he, he models like corporate America after Athens um, and how Athens, you know, came to be and, and was the center of all of this, like, you know, the democracy, essentially. Um, and, and he said, like, the, the, the focus is that people care about their community. Right. So teachers have to care about what they're doing. Students have to care about what they're doing. Anybody in a school has to care. Like that's that's kind of a, a, a non-starter. And they have to care about the community. They don't you know, it's not only about the subject. They have to care about the people who are there. Um, and then he he broke down. He, he like uh, picked apart the structure and he said that there are there are three things. The number three seems to be sticking out in my uh, in my reading, <laughs> but there, but there are three things that that it takes really to make this kind of society thrive, where where people feel empower, empowered. And the first one is participatory structures, where um, the citizens of Athens, or your teachers, or even your students, like at any level, people are people can participate and participate in a meaningful way in their in their own learning, in their own teaching. Right? This is this is all sort of a uh, it's iterative, right? It, you can look at it from all these different perspectives. Um, they also have to have communal values. And, and Melanie and I always, we preach about this at the beginning of the year. We don't talk about it enough at the end, which is that we have to be clear with kids and teachers about what are our values? Why are we doing what we're doing? And if, right. we, if we know what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing, then then we can all get on the same page, right? So you have the structure where people feel empowered. You have the values where pe- where everybody understands what the values are and the goals are for, for that community. And then practices of engagement. Like you can say things until you're blue in the face, but if you don't show in practice what you're preaching, then it's it's for naught. So if you if you say we want to empower you as students, open your books to page fifty two, right? Like that that kids see right through that, teachers see right through that. That you know you have to actually say we we are committed to helping you learn this material. Let's think about the best way to help you learn this material. Not like we have to follow this this one path for this for all of you, and you all have to fit into this mold. Otherwise, we're done. Right. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that um, that I'll tip. Look, pick, look at that article. Um, there was another piece that I read about this week um, on, in a similar vein about pushing back, right? That part of empowerment is also the ability to say no. And I, and I don't mean for in a disrespectful way, but in a learned way. And it also was from the business community. I don't remember I'll have to find the article. I don't remember where I read it, but it was, it, it talked about you can have a company or an organization where you are filled with yes people, right? That you completely, mm-hmm. as a CEO or as a manager, you have staffed your entire organization with people whose job it is to say yes. And when you do that, you can oftentimes run into trouble. Um, and the example they gave was a Volkswagen, where Volkswagen hired a bunch of people that were yes people. And I'm totally, you know, putting this at a very basic level. And they were like, oh, we're going to design this car. But they already create Audis, I believe. And so it was like we're creating a car that's at the same cost as an Audi. Like how many of these kinds of cars are, are people going to buy? But instead of pushing back, the employees were like, okay, that's a good idea. Sure, let's just do that. And of course, 
they lost money on it. And that led to the horrific situation in California for VW where they lied about their standards of um, emissions and um, and it was proven that they they sold uh, they sold a bad product. Um, and, but if they had a culture of pushback in terms of I actually you hired me because I know what I'm doing, so I'm going to push back and say, can we look at it from a different perspective? Then they might not have gotten into hold the hole that they did. So the other didn't suggest that people are constantly fighting back against the system, but are basically being empowered to say, you hired me because I am good at what I do and I might know things at a different level than you do. And so you should trust me. And he said, oftentimes these these pushbacks are not rewarded because they listen to the pushback and they avoid, you know, bad situations. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing really to reward, right? It's part of the conversation of, I think that's a good idea. Okay, well, can we find a different idea? Okay. And so you avoid these pitfalls and horrific business decisions and horrific decisions when you actually listen to the people that you've hired to do the job that you've hired them to do. Right. And I, I actually think that goes back to the practices of engagement, right? That I, that I said before, like you can, you can say to your employees or you can say to your students, please push back. If you think something's unfair, let me know. But then if you don't do anything about it and you don't change your actions, you know, it's you're still making that car that nobody wants to drive. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then you're up against the wall. At that point, I believe the CEO had to resign. Right. I I just think that it it just it it snowballs. Right. If you start with a always yes and not listening to the people around you or the teachers or the students and you think oh well it worked last year it for sure will work this year I would challenge you each and every time to say I don't think so you always have to be looking at things with a fresh perspective taking in the people that you're working with on a daily basis whether it's you know employees of a larger organization or teachers or students mm-hmm. I, no I think I, I totally hear that I, I really agree with that yeah um, and I had a couple of um just um I know we're 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 pushing our loyal listeners in terms of their listening um 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 power right now but there were two other ways I I wanted to take it the conversation just slight in a slightly different um um, direction, which was about, you know, empowering students through um, through feedback, right, or empowering teachers through feedback. The feedback that we provide either our students or our co-teachers or our colleagues can be an empowering um, experience if it's done in the right way. And if we're teaching our students to respond to and react to feedback and we give it in a meaningful way with the goal of feedback for growth, where they have opportunity to do that redo as opposed to the C on the paper and then like, oh, well, you know, better luck next time, right? Mm-hmm. So there were two things I'm going to put on our, um, on our um, show notes. Thank you. On our show notes, one that I'm pretty sure we've mentioned before, which is Austin's Butterfly, um, which is a wonderful video um, done by You're asking me. Does it work, Rick Wormelli? I don't know. You want me to Google? You talk. I'll Google. Yeah, I believe it is. Um, He wrote an ethic of excellence. So, no, it's not. And I had the book right in front of me. Anyway, so it's a way um, he teaches students how to give effective feedback. And it's an amazing video to watch. Is it Ron Berger? Ron Berger, maybe? Is that? He wrote wrote an ethic of excellence. And the second 
And the second video I'm posting is based on Ron Berger's work, which is of a kindergarten teacher who took his words to heart and taught her students how to give each other meaningful feedback on their journals, which is hysterical because some of the students, she, she uses the Elmo and posts um, one of the kids' pages for feedback. And uh, she says, well, can you tell us what it says? And in typical kindergarten fashion, this child looks at what he wrote and is like, um, yeah, no, I don't know what I wrote there, right? Because he sounded it out as he was meant to, but has, isn't quite reading yet. And so you can sound things out without being able to read. So he looked at it and there were huge chunks of words missing from his, <laughs> from his description. So the kids were like, well, you might want to rethink that. And he was like, you know, did one of those slap the forehead moments of, yeah, probably. But the beauty of both of these pieces is that how the kids respond to each other as they're giving the feedback. In Austin's Butterfly, you don't actually see Austin responding to it, but hit the product, the butterfly drawing that he does changes because of the way the feedback is given to him. And much in the same way, the teacher and the students in the kinder video give feedback, and it's up to the child for who, who is receiving the feedback to take what it is that child feels they can accomplish and move with it. So she teaches them how to filter the feedback into something that I can do or something that I might be able to do at a later date. And just like the puff upness of these little kids and these older kids in the other video, it just shines. It's amazing. That's awesome. We should watch them. I, I haven't watched Austin Butterfly in a long time. I have to watch it again. It's a good one. Um, okay. So uh, as we always, we always end by talking about an anecdote from a classroom or a question from a teacher, something, a real life experience that relates to this. So uh, did you think of one or should I start? Go. No. Okay. So um, I was thinking, what should an anecdote be? And, and I thought, what better example than my own classroom? So um, as some of those of you who are really loyal listeners might, might remember, I teach a, a very part-time uh, at a school. And part of what we do at the beginning of classes as the, as a transition from recess to class, we, we have a five minute period where the kids are memorizing Mishnah. They, they memorize uh, the first parak of Pirkei Avot. They spend the whole year doing it, you know, et cetera. So our kids are, when I looked around the classroom yesterday to see how kids were, were memorizing it, like all we gave them as a tool was a Mishnah and said like, go memorize. Um, and then I looked around the classroom yesterday cause it's, it's towards the end of the year. And there was a kid with a whiteboard writing out the Mishnah by hand. There was another one who had like, was like singing a song that she had written like to herself with the words of the Mishnah to like a tune, you know, that she was trying to memorize it by singing. Um, we had a kid who had pre-recorded himself saying the Mishnah, like reading the Mishnah, and he was listening to the recording on the iPad. And I was just thinking like, I, what better way to empower, I mean, I'm not like tooting my own horn here at all, but like what better way to empower students? I think it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's not, it's not a me as a teacher thing. It's, it's like a school culture thing that they know our, this is our goal. Our goal is to have you memorize Mishnah and you can use any resource you want and you are really free to, to do what you need to do to learn. Um, and, and that's just something that, that we've been able to foster over, over the years. I mean, these aren't little kids. So we've been able to foster over the years. They don't, didn't even ask me, like they just went and got the resources they needed and, and did what they needed to do. Um, and I think that that really speaks to what happens after kids really feel empowered of, uh, on their own learning. For sure. I don't have an anecdote that comes anywhere close to that. So I think that that's a great one, but I, I think that it, it just, it shines in so many ways 
A, that you've empowered your students or the school has, SHAS has empowered its students to take those risks, knowing that this is all, it's all cool. There isn't one way to, to tackle the, the issue or to get at that goal. So they all know what the goal is. And I'm, and that is something that both you and I, Shira, always say when we're working with teachers is you first have to identify the goal. That is the very first piece. And once you've identified that goal, everything else begins. You start to see if I change this or I tweak that, then I will be able to achieve my goal and I will help my students achieve their goals. And you've also, I to bring some universal design for learning, you've broken down many barriers to achieving that goal. Meaning that if you just presented it in one way, you must memorize this Mishnah. Think of all the students that you were watching the other day for whom this would become an impossible task, right? right? By breaking down the barriers, say you can use this and you can use that and you can use this, that becomes, it becomes a doable task to everybody. Even my college son came home the other day and he doesn't share much about what goes on at college. <laughs> um, but one thing he was sharing, I, I, I often ask him about the different ways in which teachers, his professors are teaching him. And he said, what, one of the classes, which was, is a very challenging class, the there ha it was a finance class and there are all kinds of formula he had to know. And he, I said, well, you know, how does, how do you learn it? And he said, well, actually the professor gives us a piece of paper. We all have the same size paper and we can write down as many formula as we need to, that we think we will need for the test because he knows there are too many that you need to memorize. And he said, I said, well, did you learn to write really small? And he said, well, I was able to discern which were the ones I I needed and which were the ones I didn't need. So it's not like it was an open book, but he broke down some of those barriers of my goal is for me to see what my students know. They don't need to memorize all these formula. They need to know how to apply the right formula right. in the right way. Right. Good for him. Yeah. I, lo I love hearing that it continues in college. Yes. Um, all right. So a thousand of those stories. <laughs> All right. So we are going to sign off. Thank you for listening. And um, as always, we love to hear feedback. We love to hear from you. Uh, reach out to either one of us and um, look for our show notes on Melanie's blog. Awesome. Thanks, Shira. Bye.